Hi, everyone. <laughs> to two crickets and a thorn tree. The most professionally produced podcast in the world. <laughs> Guys, and, the, uh, the production value on this show is the main value on this show. No, precisely. That's why we get listeners. Um, yeah. And of course, part of that is uh, that uh, you're, I am your co-host today, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined by Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, yeah, how are you yeah, this yeah. fine Friday? Well, so I've had this, I'm, I'm feeling like a balloon that was at a birthday party and it was a rubbish birthday party, and, but it was a helium stuffed balloon. And finally, someone has snipped the string tethering it down to the earth and, and i'm starting to float up the heavens but i can't tell if i'm floating up because of the helium or if i've actually kind of run out of helium but but there's a gust of wind that's taking me up and then it's going to smack me right back down they're like a pup <laughs> birthday balloon that's been cut off the string and caught by a gust of wind and the, and the reason for that is i've finally uh packed the last of my stuff i've been moving out of my my, my place um been a beautiful place in a little suburb technically called Randview, but it's basically Yeovil on the Yeovil Observatory Ridge, facing south and west over Bears Valley, Ellis Park, and the City Your Bowl. Your home turf. Yeah, so I did. I have loved my view. I have loved watching the sunset uh, over Johannesburg, the sort of blood red sky being pierced by. Ponty Tower, the Hillbrow Tower, the the <laughs> Transnet building, which looks like a railway. It's that sort of old, brutalist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it looks like a railway to heaven, right? That's That would be the idea, excepting when it's sunset and you see that railway going up to Transnet and then the blood red sky behind it. It looks a little bit like a railway to, to doom. Uh, many metaphors, many metaphorical <laughs> sundowners yeah, yeah. I've had and I've right. loved it, but I just can't do it anymore um for various reasons and so i've been moving out and i think that has that i think that's been driving me mad well the only thing uh, i have to worry about at the moment uh, because i don't do this whole outside thing very well uh is the, the i was playing with the cat and it scratched me really badly <laughs> so you know <laughs> different 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 perspectives um so there was there was we we, we had in the lead up to this um two two great episodes of two crickets in a thorn tree except they were just conversations between us and we weren't recording them and it was we phoned each other to talk about something else and yeah. ended up what would have been uh, uh talking about uh everything under the sun i think uh, you phoned me earlier today to ask what time we were doing the podcast and then proceeded we proceeded to get into a discussion within about two minutes of uh whether the u.s had employed the right military occupation strategy in the iraq war um yeah. <laughs> so sorry to all of our listeners who missed out on that. Maybe we can come back to that. Uh, but there was one particular thing I especially wanted to talk about today, and I know you're quite excited about it, which is uh, that great red blob in the sky yeah. called Mars. Now, the big me, move. The, the that, big that, that, move. That's, that's the one. Um, now, here's how I reached it. We've been talking a lot recently about how everything's kind of silly and how the liberal world order is under attack and how uh, the world's in a bit of chaos at the moment because, at least in part, there's technological things driving it, there's ideological things driving it, there's economic things driving it. But things are a little bit unsettled. And there's this feeling, I think, Nick, among a lot of people. don't hold back on the euphemisms. <laughs> I, so I we think this I, unsettled no. Yes, this yes. Is like, this I is think what, this is what the Irishman says when you when he's just lost his second leg. Yes. <laughs> There's this feeling, I think, that the good times of the last sort of thirty-ish years. Yeah. Um, or you can you can argue about the day. Yeah. Of our of our lifetimes might be our coming life. to an end, and there might be some some spicy days ahead, as the youth would say. And this got me uh, thinking about, you know, what did what happened the last time there was this sort of great shakeup? So uh, I always bring it back to the Reformation in Europe in the 1500s when the printing press unsettled everything and there was a lot of chaos and stuff. And, well, what did Europeans do? Well, if they were kind of on the fringes, if they were remnant, re, remnants who didn't really fit in anywhere, if they were sort of liberty-seeking people, if they were swashbucklers and adventurers... Uh, if they were criminals or outcasts, they got on a boat and they went to America. 
And it was, you know, for a lot of people, an escape. And for a lot of the societies they were living in, it was probably a release valve that uh, helped dissipate at least some of the tension going on there. Um, of course, you know, unlike Mars, when people went to America, they there were other people already living there uh, who yep. they proceeded to get into fights with. Um, so I, I, I kind of had a shower thought the other day, which is maybe rather than trying to hold back the tide of chaos on Earth, uh, that is sure to come from all the technological changes. Why don't we all just get on a boat or a ship in the uh, or a spaceship in this case, and yeah, go off to boat. Mars and start oh. and start anew, uh, uh, learning the lessons of the old world and applying them to create some beautiful new future society that will inevitably yeah. have its own ups and downs. Yeah, uh, but, Gabriel, but ups you have for a while. Some ups, ups for a while. Yes. So, <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite novels is Mole Flanders. Uh, Richard, written by Daniel Defoe, I want to say in the 1750s or something. Um, and he, he, you know, Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe, which is, which is a great tale about a guy who, who, who's really a seafarer. You know, he's just, he's just sort of growing up in like a miserable part of England and wants some adventure in his life. Rather than being a cobbler, he decides to get on a boat. And like the first time he gets on a boat, there's a terrible storm and the boat sinks, but he manages to survive. And the second time he gets on a boat, um, they get pirate captured by some Muslim slave traders, by Arab Muslim slave traders, because that happened a lot as well. And uh, uh, even so up he's to Shakespeare's period, actually. And beyond. Well, no. So Defoe's off. Yeah. And beyond. So he's so he's um uh, he, he, he's sort of uh, taken as a slave and he's a slave to some rich dudes and they teach him how to cook and he's a, he's a cook and a busboy and cleans the toilets and then after a couple of years of that manages to make a, a, a getaway and it's in the getaway things are right, things look great but then they sort of get caught by another ship and they're like well if you want to be on our ship then you have to come with us to Brazil where we're going to get some nuts and he's like okay that's fine whatever as long as I can get go back home to England on the return trip. And then that ship sinks. And then it's only on page 100 of that book that you actually get to the island where he's alone. And he gets to have his lonely times. And anyway, that's the great book. For some reason, that's the one that's more commonly read. And I think that's partly because he gets into uh, religion in a more interesting way in Robinson Crusoe. But Mole Flanders is like, is like in many ways, a much better book. Mole Flanders is this like beautiful woman who's born into uh, a, a grand house, she's sort of orphaned. Uh, she's not born into a grand house in the sense that she's born a high lady. She's born like a peasant, uh, sort of orphaned off, taken up into a grand household where she becomes a chambermaid. And because she's super hot, by the time she's 14, the like young man of the house, the sort of son of the earl who owns the manor, uh, takes a liking to her. And they do the scoodly dupes and it's fantastic uh but then she realizes that he doesn't want to marry her and then she's like no hot dang that's not right and then she kind of wants to like out him but she'd been really smart and they and the family had already been paying for her to go to school because she thought if you know if we can get her an education then maybe she can get like a slightly nicer job than just being cleaning people's toilet pots forever and then she has to run away from the family because this dude is like dude they're definitely going to take my side not yours and then from there, it's just like, it's just adventure after adventure after adventure. It's the most action-packed novel. It's fantastically thrilling. Hijackings and highwaymen and... Remind me of the a, name? Mole Flanders. Oh, Mole Flanders. She becomes a cross-dresser uh, because you, she gets to a certain age, is like not working anymore and, uh, and she's fallen out of love. In fact, the highwayman poem seems to have been inspired by the story. There's a terrible drama like that. Um, and and so she dresses like a man and becomes a trader of Flanders uh, fabrics, which are kind of illegal to sell. There's all black market trade in fabrics, in porcelain. She sort of runs a brothel. She sort of runs a little school for girls. She takes in orphans and victims of rape. She uh, does a lot of petty crime. She often dresses up as different people to go and basically rob shops. Um, sometimes she kind of does fake 
like credit fraud, which Daniel Defoe knew all about because he often wrote fake checks. Anyway, so it's a great book about a hustle. But the whole way through, her dream becomes to go to America because Virginia's been settled and there's like, you know, people have been. And so there is open land and you can go there and you can actually earn enough money in a lifetime to buy a farm that'll earn you an income in Virginia. Whereas in the UK, to do that, you just need, there's just no ways yeah, that you could earn enough money feat. to do that. It's too, it's too cramped and only the rich and the nobles and all that are going to be able to hold on to everything. Yeah, only inheritors. So that was America, right? That's the America that, that Defoe portrays. And it was interesting reading that book in my mid-20s because in my student days, I studied a lot of Russian literature and theater. And throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, until about 1920, 1930, when the Communist Party shut it down, the most common metaphor for a grand escape was if you're in the countryside, let's go to Moscow. And if you're in Moscow, let's go to America. And that's, you see the same thing in Irish theater and novels from the first half of the 20th century, going strongly into the second half of the 20th century. You see it in some German literature in the sort of second half of the 19th century. Like America was very much a dream or a metaphor for escaping. Right. Of, this, of, of terrible systems and now Amer and now america just seems really miserable uh, yeah, and so i think we need to go to mars although it, it's it's worth saying it's worth saying though that still many people are going there um because especially from countries in you know central america and africa and such yeah. which are definitely <laughs> worse than the u.s um yeah. so it is still it is still it does still fulfill that that uh, function a bit in society but Dude, i think i'm trying I think to go to america i have a yes, client as am i New York University, um, and you have and you've and and you've applied to to Hillcrest, and you know I hope we I hope we make it happen. But I'm starting to see America as a stepping stone to Mars. <laughs> yes, so let's just talk a bit about this. Um, Mars, well, it's 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 relatively close to us in terms of cosmic things, although it still takes several months to get there with the spacecraft. Um, Did it used to take several months to get to America? Yeah. It uh, it has some problems once one gets there. So the early American settlers, of course, faced um, certain challenges. Uh, they didn't really know the environment that much. It was difficult to grow new foods. They were attacked by hostile locals who weren't happy about them being there. Many things like that. Uh, here are some problems with Mars. Um, it's got less light than Earth. It's got about a third the gravity of Earth. Its atmosphere is toxic to us. It's mostly carbon dioxide um, and very little oxygen. There's no liquid water. It's got dust storms that are not very strong, but the dust can get in everything. It's got a lot more radiation, and its atmospheric pressure is about 100 times lower than Earth. So even if the air was the right consistency uh, uh, to be able to breathe it, um, if you took off a mask or something, your lungs would explode. <laughs> and of course, yeah, it's also it's got enough. toxic soil, and it has no magnetic shield like Earth has to protect it from solar wind. Uh, which is basically okay. sort of energy coming but off the sun. Nick, riddle me this. Does it have communism? Does it have the threat of nuclear attack? Does it have... Um, are you allowed to drink alcohol on Mars? At this point, that's what I want to know. I think, I think, I think uh, none of those things are an issue, which is exactly the attractiveness of it, right? Does it have um, load shedding? Does it have... Is it no, no, inundated with ideologies that make breaking things somehow more admirable than making things that make grabbing value somehow more admirable than adding value? Of course not. And this is, I think, the, one of the many attractive things about it is it really is in, in a sense that I think humans have probably almost never had before, except on the very first uh, uh, humans left their, their sort of primordial valley where they're evolved into the next valley. Um, a chance to kind of start over in a way. I mean, obviously, a Martian society would be at least a bit, quite a lot tethered to Earth, especially in the beginning. Um, but it would provide a real opportunity to create a society that was firstly a pressure release valve for Earth. Now, now, what, what, what do I mean by that? Well, 
it's a it's a phenomenon that occurs often in in societies and we just talked about it briefly where as population builds up as social sort of control of a society is uh, calcified by a particular elite as the system grows a bit decadent um a lot of people can become upset or displaced or just kind of grumpy with the way things are going even if they aren't that particularly bad it can still be very annoying for a lot of people to try and grow up in the system one which is very rigid and there's not that much opportunity for growth um and in such a case uh it's often useful to avoid social tension to take the people who are upset and give them an opportunity to go somewhere else to build a new life so this happened a bit in the american west while america went through the process of industrialization um which is traumatic for most societies um people who were kind of a bit lost in the shuffle of the change could move west um because mm. there was a lot of land for them to move into uh people fleeing tyranny in europe or fleeing poverty in europe could move into the western states of the US and build a new life uh, life for themselves out on a farm somewhere um and so that was great but it's not just there uh you can go back to ancient greece and you can find that there was a tendency of oligarchic greek city states to eventually get overthrown uh by their population and turn into either a sort of autocratic dictatorship monarchy type of thing usually referred to as a tyranny or they would alternatively turn into a democracy uh and so what a lot of the oligarchy governments realized they needed to do was ship the troublemakers off go send yeah. them to some other place in the mediterranean they can set up a nice colony and we'll still be friendly with them but they'll do their own thing there and they won't cause us trouble here yeah and so that's exactly one of the benefits that mars produces uh there are of course also other benefits as well right it's got untapped resources uh it's a backup in case we manage to mess up earth uh either through you know uh rabbit wolf genetically engineered wolves and asteroid strike and nuclear war whatever <laughs> whatever could be threatening us yeah um and this is something that some people have suggested is that once you put people into a difficult environment which is what early martian colonization would be would would be it would be very tough it would be yeah. very alien it would be difficult to to kind of deal with uh you will see people innovate like they've never innovated before that's it so i want to i want to I, this conversation does sound kind of crazy um but here's why i think it's an important one to have i think that we have we have lived in we live in the long peace uh since world war 2 there hasn't been a military conflict conflict a hot war between superpowers between major powers even there have been wars but they've they've been uh either sort of civil wars in pretty underdeveloped places or there've been wars between superpowers and smaller powers and if it is superpower against superpower then it's sort of a proxy thing now i think that and especially in our lifetime both of us being born sort of after the after the end of the first cold war um we we've been in like the super peace period of the long peace and that's not to say that we 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 didn't grow up thinking about Afghanistan and Iraq, Bosnia before that, um uh, and and since that sort of, you know, we talk about like the little skirmish on the border of India and China. Um I think we are quite there, sensitive. Yeah, there's definitely to, been trouble and of, and of course in Africa there was the big war in the 90s as well between Rwanda and the huge, DRC. Huge. But so, by and large, things have been large, much more peaceful. Global politics have been defined more by peace than 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 you can find in a while. and i think that there really are two different there there are two different ways to think about politics to think about humanity to think about freedom to think about economics and the war way war has a lot of costs um it's it's the most costly endeavor that humans uh partake but that song ha hu good god lord war what it isn't good for absolutely nothing what is nothing. it good for <laughs> yeah what is it good for absolutely nothing that's not exactly right um and this is one of the points that um i think is so important about for example the work of thomas piketty is that he notices um exactly what you're describing europe in the 19th century becoming ossified it just the the sort of mobility up and down left and right laterally 
it all starts to get a little bit crusty. The, the veins of the body politics start getting narrower and narrower as the gunk accumulates in the veins and the arteries. And it's, it's, less, it's less dynamic. And, and what World War I and World War II did uh, is bring untold misery and death to a uh, hundred million people plus. Um, it also brought huge, the, the greatest explosion of innovation, of economic growth, of kind of creativity, of explorations into the depths of the human condition. It is, it is amazing in that regard. Great, uh, the great wars. Uh, you know, there's something macabre about great. The great wars are the wars in which the most people die. Um, but they're also the times in which history moves the fastest. And they're laboratories for ideas. And you see the bad ideas lose and then you see the good ideas win. And so that is one way that that you can break the mold if, you, if you've become unhappy with the mold. And I think that that is increasingly appealing to people. I think that is why you see um, cities burning, why you see acts of terror, why you see utopian ideologies right. that and, and call for social exactly. upheaval get this social cachet. It's like people want to burn it all. They feel fed exactly. up. Exactly at the same time that people are experiencing one of the most prosperous periods in the entirety of human history. In fact, the most prosperous period. Yeah. Um, you know, the sort of uh, standard theory, I guess, that a lot of people assume is that, you know, people's lives are getting kind of better or at least they're in a good place. They're not going to want to cause social dis disorder and that kind of stuff. But it's not really the case. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. And that's one of the reasons that I draw attention to the esteem economy so much, because the, the esteem economy, one of the troubles. is So 1914 was also the like, you know, life had never been better for more people ever before that. And the world then tipped into the first great war. And I don't think you can make sense of it without thinking about honor, shame, and esteem networks and the ways in which people kind of just found themselves like, okay, my, you know, my Maslow hierarchy of needs have been satisfied. Like I've got food on the table. I've got a roof over my head. I'm living in an intensely, densely populated uh, uh, city, intensely industrialized, very productive. But I walk on the streets and no one cares about me. No one knows me. And it's and and everyone knows that other guy. And everyone has opinions about that other guy. And like half the people love him, half the people hate him. And here I am sort of devoid of, you know, there's a thirst that I cannot slake. Yeah. And it's not alcohol. And it's, I've got a it's, good, I've got a, I've got a good example of this. Yeah. I've got a good example of, of this kind of thing. Although this is also, it's often dressed up as a kind of economic thing. But go and look at any article, anything that talks about Jeff Bezos, particularly anyone that refers to him getting wealthier or losing money. And you will see a kind of aggrieved vitriol from people. Now, regardless of the moral character of Jeff Bezos, there's something weird about the fact that people get very, very upset when they hear that this guy has made more money or alternatively get very, very happy when they hear that he's lost money. Hmm. It's, it is weird if you don't think about the fact that, yeah, what's going on is like people, people are dissing a dude in just the way that people diss dudes in high school when they were, you know, if there was, if you were in a, in a grade where there was one guy who was the best at rugby and cricket and the best at academics and all the girls loved him, guaranteed that guy had enemies, guaranteed behind his yeah. back, dudes were talking smack saying, oh, I hate him. Especially if he was polite. Oh, I really hate him, you know. And if you find that he's got some dirty little secret, then that becomes very important. That esteem economy thing, it really, it, the, the greatest inequalities are in the esteem economy because you have some people that are literally known around the world uh, and attention is the precondition of esteem. And most people are literally known to like a couple of hundred tops. Yeah. So there's huge inequality at that level, but it seeks out equality because it's so easy to flip the script and be like, well, that I hate that person precisely because so many people love him or I diss that person precisely because 
uh, he's a hero to so many, and and that's just Precisely. irritating. So and so that's a nightmare. So, and the and the easiest way to break the nightmare is to just go and set up a new esteem market somewhere else. I say the best way because you, there are in history. I see only two options. The one is uh, war, where you take shuffling of the deck, different esteem networks, and you and you brutalize them, and you see which one actually um, meets the question of the battlefield uh, the best. Uh, logistics, bravery, coordination, technology, uh, staying power, morale. The other option is colonization, and colonization has been pretty, like, it really has been a very mixed bag. It's because a lot of it has been war, uh, just yep. by another name. But Mars, Precisely. there's no one there. The challenges are just, are just you sort of person against the elements and i do right. think that the greater the stress the th one thing about this team market is when there's real stress then that tends to clean up the esteem market like when you are and that's why movies you know every movie that's trying to break racism or some other kind of bigotry you know there's 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 people who don't really like each other and then they get stuck at the bottom of the well and then they have to work together to get out. Yeah, and then exactly. suddenly they find that they're much more interesting. They, people become much more interesting when they've got uh, real challenges like that, real material challenges. Uh, because then it becomes less of this personality thing. And, and, and the things that you admire and the things that you respect are, 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 are true to form. And that's not to say that uh, there's no creativity, there's no art, there's none of the good stuff. There's definitely that too. Um, but I well, think the entertainment, you, I th in fact, I think the entertainment's better as well. You can see this kind of these new little esteem markets get set up every time we have some sort of great new field or technology or subculture pop up. Um, like the early years of the Internet, you can see like uh, people who otherwise would have been fairly anonymized were able to kind of rise to the top of this new world that they were in of the Internet uh, by being, you know, the top page on MySpace or whatever in the early days or yeah. Uh, you know, someone like Bill Gates, right? He's kind of a nerdy computer engineer. You know, no one would really think much of him, except he took this new technology. He built a huge company out of it and he conquered the world in a sense and became one of its most important influential people. Um, and Mars would be like that times 10. And here's here's some of the, the crazy ideas that, that people have had to, to kind of uh, reform that planet. Because the ultimate goal, I think, of any Martian colonization mission is to turn it from the wasteland it is into something that is completely self-sustainable. So there's a number yep. of big problems you need to solve. The soil is poisonous. The atmosphere is poisonous. The atmosphere is too thin. And it has no magnetic shield. Um, oh, so it's, it's just too cold. Yeah, Nick, you've already said the bad news. Stop repeating the bad stuff. No, no, no. I'm no, trying no, to I'm just, steal some hope here. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good because bad news is just—it's uh, just news that's waiting to turn into good news. <laughs> okay, excepting so, on Earth where there's other people, in which case bad news is often yes. just waiting to get even worse. So one of the important things to remember about Mars colonization is it's really not worth it if uh, we take Earth's limited resources, we dig out an enormous chunk of them. Uh, in order to try and make us colonize Mars. And in the end, we kind of lose resources, especially in the sort of medium term. So one of the things that might be necessary is a whole bunch of innovation in like mining asteroids and stuff. Uh, yes. So the, that's, that's a way that like Mars could push technology is that instead of relying entirely on Earth for minerals and for gases and all sorts of those things, we could actually go out into the other bits of the solar system and get stuff from there. Uh, one of the because ideas it's got about, less gravity, it's easier to exactly, easier to get to. Exactly. And one of the things that we need to do is, uh, and I've loved this idea for the last decade, is you get a robot that goes and lands on an asteroid and starts mining. You pick the right asteroid because so that it has the relevant materials. It mines those materials, and then it uses those materials to make more robots that mine more materials, so Precisely. that you don't have to send a, a huge payload. You can you can you can send a manageable sized thing, but in twenty years they all fly back with like all of the steel that the Earth has ever produced, and all of and five Precisely. times the gold, and then you can send some of that gold back to the to the gold people like us. We're gold people now, but when we're on Mars, we won't be gold people. We'll be exactly. like potato people. 
So one of the one of the cool ideas for how to improve the atmosphere on Mars is to smash giant uh, asteroids filled with ammonia, uh, ammonia, um, which is NH three con- chemical compound, into the planet, um, mm. because it's a powerful greenhouse gas. And the idea here is that you're going to pump so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that it will warm the planet. Because I think Mars reaches about a a high temperature of in the twenties, but only very briefly in the summer. Um, and then it gets very cold. It's usually around sort of minus 50, minus 60. So it's like Antarctica yeah. permanently. Um, so the idea was to be to put a lot of that kind of stuff in. You can also go onto the planet. And, you know, obviously on Earth, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, our greenhouse gas emissions and that sort of stuff is all damaging the atmosphere and the planet and the environment. And we need to stop it now. On Mars, it's all a benefit. In fact, pollute away. Burn all the yeah. coal you like. It's all just good stuff. Because that would thicken the atmosphere and allow more heat to be trapped and create a sort of virtuous cycle where uh, Dude, more would be produced. How, how perfect is that metaphor? Like for exactly. one man's poison being another man's pleasure. Like coal on Mars, if you burn coal, you're doing a civil service. I love and this. Another, I want to go. And, another way. So, so you could even imagine a scenario where Earth stops using coal entirely. But because coal is found here and not there, we export it to Mars so that it can be used in their industries, which produce cheap goods and trade them back to Earth. Um, yeah, we can do coal for, the, oil, coal for gold trade. Exactly, exactly. Um, one, another cool idea is to build giant networks of satellites that effectively act as mirrors that will focus more light and heat on the Martian surface in order to heat it up. Uh, and this is very difficult but actually surprisingly close to where we are technologically in some ways, I think. Um, it involves basically creating what's called um, a solar sail, which is like a hundreds of kilometer across sort of tin or foil structure that's able to capture light and then redirect it. Dude, I want to go to Mars. I want to <laughs> go. And these challenges sound impossible, but, you know, like... The thing, well, so the thing about human so minds is like once upon a time it was impossible to get from England to America without spending three months in a ship. And then we tried and then we figured out how to fly. Exactly. Uh, uh, people thought it was impossible to get to the moon um, within, what is it, 70-ish years of taking to the skies for the first time in a powered aircraft. And yet humanity achieved it. Uh, and on the and the flip side is, you know, I really do want to emphasize that if something like this were to happen, I don't think it would just be good for the Martians. It would also be good for people. So, th- and this is why I brought up Mol Flanders and uh, Chekhov's characters and uh, Tergenev's characters and uh, Singh from Ireland. And, and, and so much, so much of European literature uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Like, even from the 18th and, and 17th centuries, if you if you go to Mars and you start doing what people thought was impossible before, people are going to look at the system that you are using in order to do those things. And they're yeah. going to look at themselves and be like, maybe we have not been imaginative enough. Maybe we've been stuck in a paradigm that is holding us back rather than driving and, and- us forward. And you can see that exactly in the American and European uh, examples, right? So the Americans have their revolution uh, in 1776, and they institute a new liberal government with limited powers of the government and uh, separation of powers and all these good things. They abolish their monarchy. And within 100 years, the world's politics is completely transformed. Uh, The ideas of liberalism take deep root in the world, and they change it significantly going forward. They took what was essentially a kind of parochial weird English way of doing things and they made it a universal principle that could be applied to all of mankind and has improved the lives of billions since then. Yeah. From South Korea to uh, India to South Africa, Rwanda. uh, uh, Where's, what's the best one in South America? I'm blanking. Where is it it Brazil? Where Soto's from. Oh, Peru. No, yeah, Peru. You know, to, to, to lesser and greater degrees, uh, other countries have managed to to refine, sometimes improve on the model, sometimes uh, 
only achieve it half with some hopes of 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 getting there but it it yeah it totally changed the conversation it made it just made it impossible for aristocrats in the european system to say look there is only one way that this thing works and it's just us at the top and you at the bottom yeah. and if you try anything else then you're just going to knock us back into the dark ages and today i feel like identitarian politics uh combined you know race nationalism and socialism have just in in the in the decadence of our luxury uh when i say our i mean the taste makers more than than common folk um has just allowed these these ideolo- ideologies to to become the new aristocracy to be, to form the codes of conduct the uh the the status units that really matter to inform how people esteem one another and it's it's very hard to disrupt that without uh profound shocks to the market and and war would be such a shock and that's just not an option it's it's not an option because of the bomb it's not an option because of the humanitarian cost it's not an option because we were better than that like we've done that and we and we're never going to do that again it's also not an option because there's always a chance that the enemies of freedom that the enemies of liberty that the enemies of goodness will win yeah um so you know, so the, let's rather go to of, exactly the outcome of 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 world wars is never never a certain thing Indeed. um I, I think i think i think this is definitely right and and it is something that's that's far more achievable than than people think but we need to kind of start seriously thinking about it and one of the people who's done that is is of course elon musk oh wait before i forget sorry there's one more benefit to mars that i need to talk about okay which is that our critical race wokeness uh, critical gender studies friends yeah. think that the colonization of Mars is a sec- is essentially a surprise surprise sexist and racist project that seeks to violate the virgin <sighs> feminine Mars with a sort of male phallic colonist who's going to conquer it and and make it submissive and such and as such we can calmly explain to them that it's probably best for them just to stay on earth and don't yeah, worry we'll go well, on our project they, on mars they don't have to yeah man this is this is like it feel part of the reason it feels like such a good idea is it feels like humanity desperately needs a divorce like there has been an unhappy marriage between people who classical liberals and identitarians Crazy. who were on the you know and and this is something that we've talked about before like I've got all the time in the world for for identitarian politics when the only way forward is a violent revolution or a violent war. Like I think um you know George Orwell was one to point this out. Uh, during World War II he thought you know I'm going to use my newspaper column to emphasize that we don't need to stigmatize all aryans all aryan germans we don't need to be like these people are inherently violent and brutal and savage and nasty and uh, and all of them need to be destroyed in order for us to have a good war effort uh we we can do this in a better way and 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 he and he walked the walk hey okay? i mean he went to the the civil war in spain took a bullet in the neck shot people that were fascists uh but without losing a sense of humanity uh without losing the sense that like this stranger in his personal capacity might be just as good a man or even a better man than i am uh might be more honorable more honest more dignified uh but he's he's committed to the wrong side so i've we've we've got to do what we've got to do um and he felt the same about the guys flying over his head and trying to drop the germans trying to drop bombs on his head uh when he was writing in london during the uh, the the not the blitz what did they call it when they were trying to bomb london that's no, the blitz the blitz so so but he said nevertheless i i understand why people are trying to drum up a kind of uh, a race loyalty like anglo-saxon loyalty right. I, I, exactly and, like we wouldn't begrudge the the Uyghurs of uh, of Xinjiang province in western china if they now want to form a nationalist movement and call themselves east turkestan considering yeah. that they're being violently horrifically treated yeah. by the chinese communist party and the institute of race relations worked very closely with uh, black power black consciousness people during apartheid because 
even though the best argument to defeat apartheid is classical liberalism, if if there's a useful argument that's really going to energize people that is about race solidarity, yeah, deploy it because the because the enemy is powerful and wicked, uh, and 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 just try and do so carefully so that it doesn't end up uh, meaning you win the war and lose the peace. And that was that was always great preoccupation uh, during World War Two was that he, he was very worried about winning the war and losing the peace. And 1984 was a sort of picture of how that would look. Um, so, so this is all to say, like the 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 woke race nationalists have been married to classical liberals because defeating fascism, defeating uh, the Soviet Union, defeating uh, the worst tyrannies of well, I'm not the sure sort of South Soviet American Union one. No, there were. I mean, there were clearly alliances between. Uh, uh, um, I would say parts of parts of Britain. I mean, uh, Britain started divorcing itself from the Soviet Union earlier, but like in the sixties and seventies, there were still lots of Brits who really were classically liberal-minded, who who apologized for the Soviet Union and ignored yeah. uh, all of the evidence of the atrocities because they thought the system that the Soviet Union was trying to resist and overcome was effectively a classical European aristocratic, non-meritocratic, non-classical liberal... Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's true. ...rubber uh, baron, boots in the face kind of thing. Socialism in Europe has a very different um, attitude than socialism in the US. It's one of the reasons it's been more successful there, is that yeah. it's, uh, it's an anti-aristocratic, anti-church uh, domination type of movement rather than just a simple exactly. uh, overthrow exactly. the rich kind of thing. But so this unhappy marriage is the, the thing about this marriage is that like 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 we were saying individual humans you, you you put the humans that don't really get along at the bottom of a well and there's snakes down there and suddenly they uh, there's you know there's a chance that they're going to start helping each other out if that's what's needed to get out of the well the unhappy marriage between classical liberals and uh, ultra left socialists and classical liberals and race nationalists. Uh, who were parts of of races that were being oppressed? It worked when there was a real enemy uh, that was potent and coordinated and deliberate and explicit to tackle and take down. But once that pressure was reduced, it's a little bit like the kids moving out of the home. Now you've brought up the children, you've sent them to good schools, you've fed them, you've clothed them, you've wiped their bums, you've taught them how to wipe their own bums, uh, you've managed to help them stave off of hard hallucinogenic drugs until they were 18. Now they're off to university and you're sitting like husband and wife and you're like, you know what? I've just realized we don't have anything in common anymore. Our mission is over. Like there are still issues. There are definitely still issues that kid needs a bit of help, but it's like at this stage, the kid needs to help himself uh, more than, you know, if we interfere, we're going to end up doing more harm than good. Uh, and I feel like that's, that's, that's a metaphor that sort of preoccupies me about the relationship between classical liberals and and race nationalists and socialists is that the problems have gotten to a stage where really the changes that need to be made are within the race nationalist pocket and within the socialist pocket. Uh, the, 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 the parts of the battle that can be fought together seem to have been exhausted to a large extent right and, I, and i'm uh, thinking more about europe and america and, and, where, and you can yeah you where can there's systemic this. racism in the in some police forces for example but you know we mentioned this before the hardest fact for black lives matters fans to to grapple with is that sort of finding by harvard professor uh fryer that when communities make complaints against the police and they get an investigation going at a local level and it kind of mostly stays out of the media and uh, and, and you just get the DOJ coming in to try and figure out if there's pattern and practice uh, evidence of bias, there's totally salubrious results. Police, like most human beings, if they're well incentivized, are really eager to do better. They're like, okay, we see there's a problem here. We should try and do this. We try and do that. Uh, citizens show increased trust. Felonies go down. Murders go down. Acts of police brutality go down. All good. But in the five cases that they tracked where there'd been viral incidents and, and the entire news media around the country had to come to damn that particular police department and then call for an investigation. Then things just got much worse. Uh, 800 excess felonies per annum. 
uh, like 60, sorry, 800 excess murders per annum, 60,000 excess felonies. I mean, it's just like mind boggling stats where the police yeah. are like, we've been so vilified. We're not actually going to go out and patrol. We're not always going to answer the phone. We just want to stay inside our little bunker because no one likes us. And, and criminals feel emboldened. They're like, you know, CNN, if I like go and loot a store or whatever, I can be sure that someone's going to make an apology for how this isn't really the point. Really the point is some like noble uh, social justice cause. It, it programs, I mean, what Fryer found, uh, a, a black dude himself who's like super keen on finding racism, is that yes. uh, the reason he wrote this thing is he's like, dude, I did this research and I found that literally more people are dying as a result of viral protests of investigations that follow, follow viral protests, more black people are dying per annum than during the worst period of American lynching from 1880 to 1902 or thereabouts. I mean, he finds like three times more people are dying per annum as a result effectively of what he postulates to be uh, Black Lives Matter right. uh, distortions of the esteem market. So that's not a, the thing is I want to try and help and Americans are in an even better position to try and help. But ultimately, the only people who can really help that problem are Black Lives Matter activists themselves. It's like kind of up to them yeah. to face the facts. We can do the research and we can try and communicate the well, information. Well, one can but they need to face the facts and, 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 and rethink it, right? And I feel the yeah. same with socialists. Uh, you know, well, well, one, uh, one can talk about the, uh, the, the, the history of South Africa post-94 as a conflict between the, the two victor sides of the struggle, right? Liberals and socialists. Uh, it's the same thing yeah. kind of playing out again. Um, and, and the Second World War, you see this phenomenon repeated over and over again. Uh, the USA and the Soviet Union team up to fight and destroy Nazism. And then afterwards, they find out that uh, they have some differences that need to be sorted. Yeah. And as it turned out, one side had a lot more differences than the other, uh, things to sort out than the other. <laughs> Indeed. So, th so this is the marriage point. It's like, you know, some marriages are held together. Maybe I'm thinking about it because a close friend of mine's getting divorced because their kids have just moved out of the home. But it's like when, you, when you're in the marriage together, there's like a mission together. What do we have in common? We both want to bring up this kid because we both love it. Uh, and, that, and that gives us a lot of ways to be sympathetic towards each other. And then the kid moves out and then you're like, oh, shit, we don't have anything in common anymore. Likewise, if, you, if you've got two ideologies and they share an enemy, then that's what they have in common. When that enemy is toppled, they find they don't have anything in common anymore. And so I feel like classical liberalism is, it is kind of, um, it's like a string without a shoe. And <laughs> we need, and Mars is the shoe. Mars is such a great shoe. And it's very complicated to like get the string in every eye and loop it through and thread It'll it up. It'll take centuries. Get the foot inside. It'll take centuries. But while that's going, that should be great work where it's happening. And it should be really inspiring back on earth to two classical liberals who want to say, look, here's the difference between what, what you can do when you think this way, when you ground your values in practical, tangible rewards that really take mental, physical uh, effort, moral courage, honesty, clarity. This is what you can do. And what are you guys doing? You're playing in a sandpit and like kind of breaking – you know, just you're breaking your toys. And I think that that, that, that that tangible contrast, like even, like here's one way of putting it. If, 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 if we managed to colonize Mars, even CNN would have to admit that's a good thing. They would have to have a headline saying, <laughs> well, colonization you know, turns out to not be totally bad. I've already seen a whole bunch of uh, hot takes talking about how uh, uh, we, we would be disturbing the natural beauty and it's not our place as human beings to do such a thing. But uh, that's 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 a debate, I think, perhaps for another time. Um, but suffice to say that I think it's really stupid. <laughs> no, dude, those that. guys can try and stop us. And I've got to say, so you said Elon Musk. Like, I kind of resent Elon Musk in this in this very oh, childish schoolboy way because exactly he's just – Oh, my God, dude. He's just had such a flavorful life. There's this there's this interview that he does like He's also, 15 years ago when he just made money and he was such a douchebag. He was like, this is my beautiful like trophy girlfriend. This is my McLaren F1 that I can't drive fast enough through the suburbs of Virginia or Vermont or wherever he was. And I just want to make more money and have more fun. I mean, you were saying he he was he was shagging Amber Heard while she was married to Johnny Depp. 
that has been alleged, yes, in a in a current court battle that's going on between Johnny Depp and the Sun newspaper. I mean, that is just that she she's like a very strange character. She is extraordinarily good looking. She uh, says that she was beaten up by Johnny Depp. It looks like there's evidence that she actually beat Johnny Depp up and then was trying to play a Me Too card. To, to garner herself more glory. Before she got married to Johnny Depp, she was a lesbian. I mean, she's a very interesting character. And and who was she cuckolding Johnny Depp with? Elon Musk. I mean, this guy is definitely living the most cartoonish uh, version of a, of a billionaire's life. As, as a guy on uh, Twitter called Sonny Bunch said... Um, you know, if you're if you're going, if you're an insane billionaire who's looking for attention and wants to troll the world, you can be like Trump, win the presidency, and then get saddled with one of the worst jobs in the world with half of people hating you. Yeah. Or you can be like Elon Musk and uh, design an entire like troll campaign where you make a joke about the number sixty nine on Twitter for a whole bunch of days and get the whole world talking about you. If you're an egomaniac, these are two different strategies and one of them is vastly superior to the other. The Elon Musk strategy is just brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I and I kind of and I kind of and I kind of just do love the fact that he he, he that his mission in life is to die on Mars, preferably not on impact. And <laughs> And I remember when he first launched the Mars idea, everyone, every bit of coverage that I saw was super excited for basically the reasons that we've said, but sort of less drawn out. You know, people are like, dude, that's like a new great mission. How exciting would that be? That would be inspiring to all humankind. Um, also, it might create a, a pressure release valve for uh, for troublemaking humans or curious humans who want to make some social experiments of of a kind that's not like w what we're doing now also for m material toxins and then it started to sour and i remember bill maher was the first guy that i saw sour it. and bill maher uh, is the most interesting of the late night american funnies and his line was you know come on let's be mature this is like kids in the sandpit who've made poos in the sandpit while playing with their little toy trucks and stuff. And then instead of cleaning it up, they want to sort of look for the next sandpit. And I thought, you know, you've got a point there. Like I wouldn't want all resources and energy to be dedicated to a Mars mission and, and sort of just give up on earth. That would be crazy. But on the flip side, like so many kids are just still pooing in the sandpit. Like there's more like, I don't think you can keep yeah, up with how many kids are pooing it's, it's, in the sandpit. It's reasonable to get out of the sandpit eventually. There's yeah, there's like a there's an equation in here somewhere of like how many poos per minute there are and how many little spade shovels of like digging the poo out and putting it in a little thing you can possibly pull off per minute. And at some point the former becomes so much larger than the latter that uh, you want to look at a new uh, at a new possibility, and look, maybe Mars is wrong. Maybe we should try and make a city at the bottom of the ocean. That seems, in some ways, more <laughs> inhospitable. Well, then we'll have to, of course, uh, settle with the local uh, mermen, of course, which would which would be a whole raft of of complicated political issues. There is there is one other thing that makes me think that uh, Mars is a uh, is a is a good bet, or, or is a necessary bet, not just a good bet. Um, but that's after. After watching how the world responded to COVID, which thankfully is really not the civilization-ending plague that we always fear could be around the corner, but just yeah. the sort of general silliness, I thought to myself, you know, if there's ever an asteroid that threatens human civilization heading for Earth, oh I God. really am not confident that our our system as it is would have any sort of real way of, of stopping it. We've become sort of so nihilistic and navel-gazing and petty that the the ability of Earth to successfully respond to a planet-destroying asteroid would not be very good. And so, dude, if, if there was an asteroid coming here, we would burn down. We firstly would like move some statues around, and well, then we, 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 we would just burn down every major city that we could get our we hands. We demand on. that we demand that the committee that was determining how we should best deal with the asteroid and redirect it uh, be diverse 
in uh, gender and race terms. Uh, and then also anyone who suggested that this was a bad idea would need to be fired at the asteroid to appease its wrath. Yes, exactly. It would also be a, this this be a big faction <laughs> that would be calling for the asteroid to hit us and saying that it would be a better alternative than the, than what we've got. Yeah. So Human beings, if, the Greens would be like, finally, Earth is going to get a chance. Exactly. So if we had Mars, it would be a nice backup so that if we do encounter such a problem and we are annihilated, uh, we can at the very least say, well, we've got plan B. And that's always a nice thing to have. Dude, I'm, I want to go to Mars. The only thing is, it, I, Nick, the main problem with your plan is that I think is that neither of us have anything to contribute right now because we're not no, no, scientists. No. We're we're very much the 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 setup setup on the planet once we get there phase of the operation, not to yeah, contribute the, anything useful in the important early bits. We're not on the useful side of this equation, and that's a problem. And that problem is compounded by the fact that like the only guys, and by guys I mean women and men, um, who are going to be getting free tickets to Mars, uh, are going to be the super useful ones. So we're probably going to have to pay for our tickets to get to Mars which means we're going to have to make a lot of money, which means we should definitely stop uh, working for the Institute of Race Relations and uh, either sell our bodies to the night or become kind of uh, woke journalists that uh, uh, bear our chests and beat them and uh, and, and facts be damned. Uh, just just well, say whatever you know, fits the narrative next. We could always start a GoFundMe and try get see if our listeners will fund us going to Mars. So we can blaze the trail for them. Start the two crickets in a thorn tree <laughs> republic on Mars. I think I think that could be quite good. Uh, well, well, okay. let's let's start to wrap it up here. See if we can actually finish an episode within time. Do you have any recommendations for people? I do have one. So if you don't have one, I can go ahead. Dude, I've got a very strong recommendation. If you have listened to this podcast all the way till now, please fund Nicholas and I to go to Mars, and we <laughs> promise. To stream tip-top ace number one quality podcast back from Mars to Earth uh, to to keep the flag of liberty flying uh, on on two planets. It's got to be the first flag to fly on two planets. And uh, and as a special tribute, anyone who donates more than five rand, we promise to carve their name into the first thorn tree that we plant in Mars. That's a, that's a great offer. I would definitely take up that if I was a, a loyal listener of this show. Yeah, we, we um, haven't set up a GoFundMe platform thing, so <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll let you know when we do. If we get if we get positive comments, we will. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I would recommend that anyone who plays video games, computer games, whatever, uh, that you look into a game called Surviving Mars. Uh, it's a fun city builder. Came out in 2018. Uh, I think they've basically stopped updating it now. Um, it's about 175 rand on uh, on Steam. Uh, you can get it. Also, the expansion is 130 rand, and it's exactly about all the stuff we've just been talking about, right? It's about building a settlement on Mars, terraforming the planets, and making it uh, a livable, breathable place. And it's got a lot of cool ideas. It teaches you a lot about the planet. Um, it's actually the the piece of media that made me fall in love with the idea of colonizing Mars. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I've, I, you know, I paid sort of, I think I got it on sale. I picked it up for like 200 Rand or something. Um, and I got it and I've gotten 30, 40 hours of enjoyment out of it. So I'd highly recommend that. Uh, Gabriel, do you have anything so similarly insightful? My only gaming recommendation is Pathologic and Pathologic 2, which are cult <laughs> classics uh, that came out of Russia in the last 10 years. And I have played a little bit. My fiance has played them a lot. Um, the, the, you, you can get an English version. It's sort of a, a role-player game where you arrive at a town and you can choose one of a couple of characters, but the town has just been overwhelmed by a plague. And it's sort of a slightly, you know, sort of late Victorian era kind of vibe. Uh, but there's this terrible plague that comes in and people start dying and... Uh, you have to enforce some social distancing and and kill people to try and make a vaccine. It's, it's, and, so it sounds like it's very good for reminding people about why we should be going to Mars. <laughs> yeah. So like, so I loved this game in 2018 and 2019, and then in 2020, I just neither of us have been able to play it because it's so 
chillingly uh, uh, like real life. Um, but it definitely, I, it, it does have, I don't want to give too much of the plot line away, but basically one of the ways you can win is to go to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so right, these awesome. guys got it. Before the plague, they figured it out. It is... The human beings, we need we need each other, but we need sometimes a little bit less of each other. Yeah, sometimes it's like a like a blade needs a whetstone to uh, sometimes make sure that it's able to do what it does. Is dude, you know, you know what it is? Exactly, it's like you know, you need a party, and that's great, and you need to get everyone to come to the party, and then the party can continue. But sometimes you just need an after party to get to a place where like the music is soft enough that you can hear yourself think. That's what I want. I just want to be in a place where I can actually hear my own thoughts between my ears over the din of hatred and fury that just pour out of my screen and out of so many social interactions. And and that and that's more than Mars. Yeah. That's really what I, I think I think you speak for us all there. So uh, everyone, get on board with the Mars after party. If you are a useful <laughs> useful individual who has great scientific engineering skills whatever you're a, you're a businessman who can fund things uh seriously think about mars read about it and uh you you might also we hope that we've inspired you to to launch the next phase of of humanity's uh progress i guess yeah and uh with that let's call it to a close cheers everyone we'll catch you on the next episode and have a great time stay thirsty